Many doubted we'd ever see it, but here it is. The return to glory. McDavid stops up. What a move. Shoots. Scores! Hey, everybody, and welcome to The Outsiders. It's Bryn Griffiths along with Robin Brownlee on podcast number nine. Nine it is, sir. Okay, well, let's get right to it today. Let's uh, talk about the Edmonton Oilers right off the top. The winning streak is over. 5-0 and to start the season. It's been a long time since that happened. Goes back to, what, the 84-85 season? There was some pretty good talent on that team. <laughs> you think? Yeah. But anyway, the streak is over. Lost to the Chicago Blackhawks on Monday night. And Chicago played very well in that game. I thought Corey Crawford was outstanding. Oilers goaltending, with the exception of that L.A. game where it was a little bit of an adventure for Mike Smith early, the goaltending hasn't really been a problem so far for this hockey club. But what was your assessment of the game against Chicago? Well, I tell you what, Bryn, the, the goaltending to me is is a little bit of a uh, revelation. Frankly, it's been an Achilles heel for them uh, for too long, and what they're getting now is, and it's a cliche, but it's they're getting goaltending that gives them a chance to win. They weren't good enough to win last night, but the goaltending was good enough in my mind, and that's something that just wasn't there last season. I'm really surprised by Mike Smith, how solid he's been. Koskinen has been pretty good. Now, Smith had the adventure with the puck. Uh, had he stayed in the blue paint a couple of games ago and uh, just stopped pucks, the Oilers would have been fine. But you know what? They're getting goaltending. Oh, and James Neal. <laughs> he has now yes. more goals through six games this season than he had all of last season. How do you like that? He played, I think, 63 games last season with the Calgary Flames, and here we are through six games. He's already got that total, so that that trade. And, you know, people are going to be doing this all season long where sure. they do the comparables. And at the end of the day, I think Calgary got what they thought that they needed. And I don't know if that's going to work out for them, but that's what they're, you know, the only people that have to be happy about it are the Calgary Flames and maybe the fans the Edmonton Oilers needed just one more guy who could score some goals and assist with the power play, mm-hmm. which has been very solid for me through the through the first six games. In fact, going into the Chicago game on on Monday night, uh, they they were the number two power play in the league. If the power play can contribute and keep contributing over the next few months, they'll find themselves in a uh, in a positive situation because everybody looks at that American Thanksgiving date, and if you are kind of in, you're in. And generally, with the exception of the St. Louis Blues last year, that tends to hold true. So I always remember Peter Marr, the longtime voice of the Calgary Flames on the radio, telling me that he believed, and I, I certainly believe this now, that what you do in October and November really does set the tone for the rest of the season because wins should be a little easier to come by. If your power play is clicking, that really helps. But uh, but I, I firmly believe if the Edmonton Oilers can just find a way to cruise from now till the end of November and put themselves in a good position, they'll be in a good position all season. Well, I tell you what, Bryn, you can't play your way into the playoffs in October, but you can play your way out, out of them if you yes. get a terrible start. So far, so good on that front. And uh, the other thing about uh, this squad, and you, we've talked about the net minding and, and the power play, the other thing that I've kind of liked, and, and I thought they were a little brain dead in the game against Chicago. They just seemed like they were mentally a little out of it. And if you're just one step slow, you don't win those loose puck battles. If you're one step slow, you don't get your coverage the way you want in your own defensive zone. Mm-hmm. I thought they were one step slow against a team that really was desperate to find a way to win their first game of the season. And you and I have covered hockey teams long enough to know that these guys, these athletes, are in such spectacular condition that they don't physically wear down as much as fans think. They mentally break down. We've been on long road trips where we've we've seen them play, you know, six or seven games in 14 to 16 nights, and by the time you get to those last two or three games on the road, they're mentally tired. And when you're tired, you just make mistakes. Yeah, not every game. You're, you're not going to have your best stuff every game what you want to do is minimize it so far the oilers have done that 
they're five and one, and uh, I don't think anybody saw that coming. So they're good right now. At the time of our taping, the only unbeaten team left is the Colorado Avalanche, who, and I've watched a lot of their games lately. If they can find a way to get solid goaltending throughout the entire season, they are going to be one tough team. They they can beat you up. They're physical. They're big. But you know what? They're also fast. They've got some great talent. Oh. Uh, Nathan Nathan McKinnon. Oh my God, he can fly. The whole that whole team can fly. So watch out for the Colorado Avalanche. I I guess uh, I'm Captain Obvious here by saying that. But every time I watch them, I'm very impressed, and they're highly entertaining to watch. All right, talking about the Edmonton Eskimos, Robin, because we've got a big show planned mm-hmm. today. Edmonton Eskimos found a way to win that game against the British Columbia Lions over the weekend, so they're into the playoffs. Now they've got a few games left. Can they find a way to tune up and tune in so they might be able to do some damage or make a few teams sweat? Honestly, Bryn, I don't think so. I think we're probably going to see uh, Trevor Harris uh, when we get to the playoffs, uh, we're certainly likely to see him in that first game against Saskatchewan. They've got the bye week. He's got time to rest. My understanding from being out at practice was that, um, you know, he's throwing the ball again. The The bye is really uh, helpful for him. The, the takeaway uh, for me, Bryn, in, in that game was, well, two things. I don't think the Eskimos are there yet. And maybe Harris bumps them over the top and makes them competitive, uh, not only against Saskatchewan, but in the playoffs because they're now in. But was watching uh, Mike Riley of the Lions go down with that broken wrist. We've talked all season about how he was the last man standing, which seemed a bit odd seeing as he takes more licks than any quarterback I can think of, but he always gets back up. Well, this time he didn't get back up, and when he did, you could tell something was uh, badly off. Uh, Broken wrist, Uh, Mike Riley's season is over, and you hate to see that at any time. Uh, The fact that he's a former MOP in Edmonton Eskimo uh, doesn't make it any better. Uh, You want to beat a team at their best, and the Lions were, were done when he went out and are done now in terms of the playoffs. It's too bad his season has to end that way. Coming up on our podcast today, we're going to be chatting with former Edmonton Oilers head coach Ron Lowe, also played as a netminder with the Oilers and a few other teams, and also going to be chatting with another netminder, Corey Hirsch, who is now uh, one of the uh, broadcasting voices on radio for the Vancouver Canucks, and his story, it's a wowzer. Uh, I think you're going to get blown away by this uh, interview with Corey coming up in a few minutes. Well, I tell you, I'm looking forward to talking to Corey. Um... We crossed paths in Kamloops back in the mid-1980s. He was a scrawny, red-headed goaltender. Uh, I think he weighed about a buck fifty back then. Uh, I left Kamloops and came to the Edmonton Journal. He played there. He went on to an NHL career with, with the Rangers. He played in the league. But the story uh, about Corey uh, were the mental health issues. He not only endured... Uh, but survived, and the story he told a couple of years back uh, on the Players' Tribune. If you haven't read it, I'd suggest you read it. It's called Dark. Uh, There's a follow-up to that called You Are Not Alone. Corey Hirsch, some 30 years later, is uh, 47 years old and one of the great advocates uh, for mental health in this country, uh, we've got to get out there and talk about this. That's what he does now, as well as being an, an announcer uh, for Vancouver Canucks games. Corey Hirsch has turned a uh, mental illness that almost took his life uh, into a calling where he is going out and talking to people and advocating on their behalf. Uh, it's a wonderful story, and it's worth listening to. And Ronnie Lowe, uh you know, the Oiler, the Edmonton Oilers family, the Boston Bruins, and the NHL at large uh, lost Teddy Green last week, last Tuesday. Yep. He was a wonderful man. Uh, he was a, a fiercely competitive hockey player. He was a seven-time Stanley Cup winner, five of those here with the Oilers as a coach. Ted Green was the epitome of the you-can't-judge-a-book-by-its-cover Uh Tough as nails and mean as hell on the outside to those who didn't know him. And a wonderful, 
generous, kind man on the inside to those who did. And uh, I certainly look forward to talking to Ron Lowe, who was as close to Teddy as anybody. Yeah, we'll have some stories. I got to tell you a quick one, though, that came to mind when I heard about his passing on Saturday afternoon, and that is if he liked you, he always battled and came to your rescue. And Mm -hmm. the the best example I can think of was in Boston, where he is still beloved, by the way. We used to joke about the fact that the team bus would have to wait not because of somebody on the current team, but there were legions of Bruins fans that were outside the hotel that wanted to get Ted Green's autograph. They they still held him in very, very high regard. And and the best example for me was one night we were out. We went out for dinner to Legal Seafoods, like everybody, because we wanted some chowder. And then we went to a, a sports bar afterwards, and I went to get a couple of beer for a couple of the guys at the table, and I was talking with the bartender, just chatting, and he found out where I was from and this kind of stuff. And some of the coaches were there. Anyway, I turned around really quickly, and there was a guy, a big guy, by the way, standing right behind me. I didn't realize how close he was. And when I turned around, I spilled the beer all over the front of his uh, shirt. Oops. And uh, he wasn't very happy, nor should he have been. It was a dumb maneuver on my part. I would call it a rookie, a rookie mistake. Anyway, this guy grabbed me by the shirt, like just right here. Grabbed me by the shirt, and I thought he was just going to tune me in right there. Just just try to do the lawnmower. And? And, and out of nowhere, who do you think showed up? I'm guessing uh, Ted Green? Yes, Ted Green. And he came over and says, is there a problem here? And the bartender recognized him immediately and said, no, there isn't, Mr. Green, sir. Everything's just going to be fine. And then he looked at the big guy who was about to clock me and said, Steve, everything is okay, Right. And Steve looked and he said, Mr. Green is, uh, this is one of Mr. Green's friends. Oh, and then everything went away. (laughs) And I apologize. I bought the guy a beer because he was standing right behind me and I bought two more beer. But I always remember how fast he moved from the table to come over to my (laughs) rescue because he was a team guy. He was just a team guy. Well, it might not have gone very well for that man. He probably took the... uh, best route out of that uh, uh, situation. Well, the the second trip back to the bar, the the uh, bartender was uh, talking about how he, and he, this is a guy, you know, these are career bartenders in Boston. It's just like cheers. And uh, he, he remembered Ted Green vividly. Mm-hmm. And the moment Ted just appeared into the, into the scenario, he, uh, he, he just basically wanted to make sure he diffused what could have been an ugly situation. And anyway, I just, it, like I said, it just made me laugh because there's so many great Ted Green stories. We all have them. We all want to share them, and we'll be doing that with Ron Lowe coming up in a couple of minutes. But coming up next, are you ready? Corey Hirsch is going to join us. Looking forward to it. Corey Hirsch, lots of stuff to talk about. Well, he played for four different NHL teams, the Rangers, the Canucks, the Capitals, and the Stars. He is certainly an advocate nationwide for mental health issues, and he joins us on our podcast today. Corey Hirsch, hello. What's going on, gentlemen? Beautiful day today. Yeah. The hockey season is is upon us. That's always good. Oh, yeah. (laughs) How are you doing, Corey? I'm doing great. I'm uh, on the color commentator for the Vancouver Canucks and radio. So um, it's it's going to be an exciting year. Like the Canucks have a pretty good team with Pedersen and, and a lot of young guys, Hughes. And um, it's, it's pretty exciting to watch these guys grow. They're young, but Canucks, I think, eventually are going to be a pretty good team. This is the third season for you doing color? This is my third season, yeah. And uh, what what better job is there than to talk about hockey well other than playing hockey that's for sure well we we yeah uh, <laughs> we chatted a few weeks ago with ray ferraro who said the learning curve was quite steep he said because when you play you just kind of go and do but now all of a sudden you got to find ways to describe and explain the game to fans you got to be fair there's all sorts of different things you got to take into consideration but he does a national broadcast where you're just doing a local radio broadcast yeah, it's uh, you know what I, I the fans here in Vancouver are very uh, passionate about their team. There's no question about that. So it's changed a lot since I was a player. Like social media changed the landscape quite a bit. 
Um, I think fans are more knowledgeable now, and they, they I think they're a little bit more demanding. <laughs> so it's it's been fun, but I mean, I, you make a mistake on air, and people know, like, they'll call you out for it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, hey Corey, um, I could talk hockey with you all day, but I, I want to talk about something that's uh, – a big part of your life and, and uh, something that uh, moving forward is, is very important to you. I got to tell yeah. you, Corey, you were, a, you were a kid in your first year in Kamloops in my last year in Kamloops before I came to the Edmonton journal, I followed your career. Uh, what I didn't understand is uh, some of the issues you were dealing with in the rink and outside the rink. And then uh, a few years back, in, or a couple years back in 2017, I read an article by you in the Players' Tribune, uh, dark, multiple dark, but the I call the article dark. And the first sentence, I got to be honest, Corey, it grabbed me by the neck and it wouldn't let go and it made me read it and it made me think a lot and it's really your story. And that first sentence of that item was, it's the summer of 1994. I'm standing at the edge of a cliff in Kamloops, British Columbia, and I am checking out. Wow. That is a kick in the gut, uh, whether you know Corey Hirsch or not. Talk about what you meant by that and talk about how you got there, and then we're going to go over uh, how far you've come since then, but where did you, how did you get standing on that cliff, Corey? <laughs> well, it's, you know, now it's, it's quite a long time ago. It seems like just a, a distant memory, but, um, I have obsessive compulsive disorder. So what, what that is, is I have, I have what's called Puro. So just to start, um, and explain it a little bit is, is that, you know, everyone thinks the hand washers and, and, uh, uh, you know, the people that don't want to touch dirty things, that's what they really associate OCD with. And people are like, well, what, well, what's wrong with that? Well, everything I do is done in my head. So you would never be able to see it outwardly. So, um, you know, and, and there's three different types of thoughts of Puro. One, one is, uh, there's harm thoughts, there's sexual intrusive thoughts, and there's, uh, scrupulosity thoughts. And what happens is, is that people that, almost um such as myself that almost care too much about things um we overanalyze and um that's where ocd comes in so i'll give you a, just a quick example of it. if you're ever driving your car down the road and you're driving there's traffic coming towards you and you have that impulsive thought well what if i just swerve my car into the other lane mm-hmm. right and then i think everybody's pretty much had had a thought like that so someone that had, doesn't have an OCD type brain, what they do is they just go, well, that was a silly thought and they just move on with their day and nothing else happens. Someone like me who has an OCD brain thinks about, oh my God, is that something that I'd really be doing? Uh, and then I'd go home and I'd analyze it to death and it would cycle in my head and it wouldn't leave me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now that thought is just the one small facet of Puro, um, thoughts that I had that that's a pleasant one compared to things that I have. Um, so that's just the best way to, to describe it in a, in a simple way. So, um, you know, when I was with the New York Rangers, I just finished playing in the Olympic silver medal and got with the New York Rangers on the run to Stanley cup. I was the third goalie and I was out with uh, a couple of other black aces from Washington. And I all of a sudden I got one of those thoughts and, and, um, you know, like I said, most people would just go home and they'd be like, oh, that was a silly thought. Me, um, you, you know, I thought uh, it would just go away on its own. So I went home and I went to bed. And the next morning, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I just couldn't. It just kept cycling over and over in my head, trying to figure it out. Um, and it was 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I didn't know what it was. I, I had no idea. So OCD is a little different. Depression and some of the other mental illnesses can kind of creep up on you. OCD, I can tell you where I was, the time, the place, um, you know, where, what happens. And most people with OCD can, can describe that as well, where something in your brain just kind of breaks. And it's like a broken record. It's like you can't put the needle back on the broken record and you can't fix it. So anyways, I got to the point where, um, you know, the Stanley cup champion, New York Rangers come, but I'm, I'm having these debilitating panic attacks and, and I can barely get out of bed 
to the point where my mom had to come out to New York uh, to try and help me. So, I mean, this is the Coles Notes version I'm giving you guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but that summer I go to get diagnosed um, and I end up getting misdiagnosed. And the lady, the therapist that tries to help me, and I, I just knew something was wrong. I didn't know what it was, actually tries to help me, you know, think that I am these, these terrible things and thinking and, and that maybe, you know, uh, it's something I need to deal with. Well, that would have been, that was completely the wrong thing. And it's something people get misdiagnosed with OCD all the time. And it actually can be quite deadly. So to me, um, you know, having these, these thoughts of harm, these, these sexual intrusive thoughts, these awful thoughts that wouldn't stop, I would have rather have been just not here anymore. Um, and so that's how I ended up in that position. But, you know, coming, coming to the, the, you know, to that day, and, and I guess there was a sliver of hope that I, that I was something that I, you know, I didn't really want to end my life, but I just didn't want to have to have to like had no other way to find the way to make it stop. Um, and I guess there's a sliver of hope somewhere that, um, you know, I ended up being able to, uh, just in somehow that I wouldn't end up being that way for the rest of my life. Um, and I just decided, okay, I'm going to live with it like this. So that's kind of how I ended up there that day. And I spent the next three years in hiding, uh, panic attacks, but I'm, but on the ice, I'm playing amazing because it's kind of my safe haven. Right. So I'll let you guys take it from here. I give you the Coles notes, but <laughs> well, I, I want to go back just a little bit further because let's go back to the Kamloops time. And now I'm thinking to myself, did you really start to know that this was a problem even before you started playing junior hockey? How far back does this even go? You obviously talked about when you were uh, in New York and, and Washington and how that was a, a pivotal time for you. But I want to go back just a little further. Did you know anything was a little not right or a little not off? A clue. No idea. Not huh? a clue. No, I, I, you know, I had anxiety issues. Yeah. Um, like, but, but you know, what, who doesn't? Right. I mean, right. I was playing junior hockey. I mean, we did, I had anxiety issues, but nothing, nothing as definitive as what this was. Like, like I said, I can tell you the day, the moment, everything like, um, and it's, uh, that's where OCD is misunderstood and, and OCD, I never knew this, but people with OCD are 10 times more likely to take their own lives than the average person. Um, and I never really saw OCD that way. And I don't think a lot of people did until the article came out. Like it was kind of like the, the um, people kind of thought it was funny in, in a way. And it became, it becomes like a, you know, Oh, I'm so OCD. I, I clean my house, you know, so much. And it's like, well, if you know the people that I know that almost ended up dead because um, you know, because of OCD, you probably wouldn't, wouldn't be saying that. So, right. but it became kind of the, I guess it didn't, it doesn't get the respect that a lot of other mental illnesses get. <laughs> and that's, that's interesting. That's a weird way to say it, but it's true. Well, you hear people use that term flippantly, and I know what they mean, but really, it's oh, it's, I do too. It's, yeah. it's it's got nothing to do with the real issues that you faced, Corey. I can only wonder uh, the era you grew up in. Who could you talk to? Um, I mean, you're oh, nobody. You're Mom. locked. Yeah, you're locked in. You're locked. In, you're locked in this alone, aren't you? Really. Welcome completely and it was it you know and it, it's the 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 it's the terrible repetitive thoughts that keep you trapped is you're like a prisoner in your own mind um and every day you're hoping that you find the key that'll just make it go away like that that one the the one thing that'll make it go away um and you never do until you go get therapy and go get help so uh, you know there really was nobody I, I talked to my mom i talked to a few close people but then you just go into hiding and most people with mental illness, it's eight to 10 years before they get help with uh, their issues. And by then you're so intertwined in it that it's hard to do the therapy. So, you know, I preach early diagnosis whenever I, um, you know, when I talk, because it's like, any, it's like, it's like cancer at stage four. I mean, how hard is it? It's so much harder to cure than it is at stage one. Yeah. And mental illness is kind of the same way. Like it's so much easier at stage one than it is at stage four, but we've, but the stigmas force people into hiding so they don't go get therapy and they don't get help. Well, and Corey, here's the thing, and this is not 
meant as a slight to the people involved in the game, but there is a culture in hockey. If you talk about difficulty as a member of the general public uh, raising this issue, saying, look, I've got a problem here, I need some help, I my read on it, and you you lived it, is it's even harder to do in the culture of hockey where uh, these are macho guys, these are tough guys, they play through broken bones and broken teeth, and you don't complain and you don't bitch and moan, and you just get on with it. That's got to be the loneliest place of all. It, it You know, it really is. And the fact that, and, and Robin, I mean, you, you've seen it, you've been through all of it too as well, is, is that you've seen what junior hockey is like. So junior hockey for me in Camelots was amazing. It was a safe place to play. Bob Brown, Ken Hitchcock, like I, I am forever grateful for that. Mm-hmm. But the atmosphere that is created around hockey, whether it's college or junior or midget or whatever, it's, it's not just the, the CHL or any, it's, it's that suck it up mentality. It's that toughness mentality. So I grew up learning how to be a man on a bus with 20 other guys between the ages of 16 and 19. Mm-hmm. Okay, so where do we start? <laughs> right? yeah. Like that's where I learned about masculinity. Okay, well, so how wrong was that <laughs> in the first place? But um, as far as you know, that's the culture that we create, and 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 it's okay to be tough and and to and to you can still, but but you know, when it comes to mental health, um, you know, you wouldn't walk around a guy wouldn't take a slap shot with a broken and, and break his leg and then try and play the next twenty games. He'd go and he'd be out for six weeks. Right. So, um, when your brain kind of breaks, you know, we have this kind of don't, don't, don't see, don't hear, don't tell type mentality. Well, you have to get it fixed. (laughs) It's, it's no, it's no different. Yeah. You can walk around and try and play on a broken leg, but you're not going to play very well or a separated shoulder. Well, something's going on in your brain and you're severely depressed or you've got anxiety issues. It's hard to play. So you have to, you have to, we have to treat people and tell people that it's okay to have that. And you know what? Go get it fixed. You'll be a better player. Hey, Corey, I have to, I want to go back to uh, Robin and I had a conversation with Theo Fleury probably a couple months ago and, and it's a little different, but in some ways it isn't. He talked about how he had a moment where he was at a book signing and he noticed one guy in the line who just seemed very withdrawn and was holding the book to his chest and came up to him eventually and put the book in front of him. And he looked at him and the guy turns to Theo and says, me too. And at that point, Theron said he recognized that everything he'd gone through, he'd had to find a way to try to help others. Did you have a click moment where all of a sudden you realized, okay, everything. Yeah. yeah, Where, where was that moment? So I, so I was at a, uh, so I, I always knew that I would try and help people in some form or whatever. I didn't really know how, but what really kickstarted it was I was at a, a Coyotes hockey game in Arizona and Jared Bouquet is a, a friend of mine. I played junior with him. He's an agent and he's sitting at the game with a player that I think is supposed to be playing in the NHL at the time. I'm like, Oh, huh. I, you know, I know everyone. I'm like, and I asked him, I said, why aren't, why aren't you playing? And he's like, well, I'm in rehab. And I'm thinking, okay, well, what do you mean? Your knees or whatever, your rehab, whatever. He's like, no, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in rehab for, for alcohol and, and drug addiction. And I'm like, okay, well, all right, you know, whatever. So I'm like, I know there's obviously, when, with addiction, there's obviously mental health issues. Um, they go hand in hand. So I go, I'm like, let's go for coffee. You know, he's probably lonely. He's here by himself. It's like November, season starting. So I go, I take him for coffee, and I won't, I won't say the name of the person. Okay. Um, and I just look at him and I just start spilling my story because, you know, I, I know that there's uh, mental health and addiction go hand in hand. And he looks at me and he says, and he said the same thing. He's like, oh my God, that's the same stuff that I go through. Um, almost with the OCD. And his mom had to, he said his mom had to resuscitate him twice from fentanyl overdoses. Wow. So it was at that moment I was like, okay, you know what? I'm not the only one out there and people are, I, I, at that point I didn't really see OCD as, as, as suicidal for people. And I just thought, you know, for me, that's what it was. And I didn't really realize that. And it was that moment when I kind of just realized like, like, Holy crap, like I have to get my story out there. People need to hear my story because I can't let this happen. Uh, right. You can, we, and so I ended up, uh, I ended up going to uh, bizarre, and then the chain of events just kind of happened. Like I ended up going. Ron Smith, my coach from uh, the minors, he ends up passing away, and I end up going to his funeral in Toronto. And I meet Lana Quinn, 
who ends up, she's the head of the Sedin's foundation and, uh, or helps with doing that stuff. And she ends up connecting with the players tribune. And, and it's like, it was just the snowball effect came. And, and then when the article came out today, it's still the most, I mean, think of all the, all the great athletes that have been in players tribune, like mm-hmm. Derek Jeter owns it. And all those guys that have had stories today, my story is still the most clicked on they've ever had. Um, you know, and it had like something like 2 million hits in, in one day or something ridiculous. So then I, that just told me, you know what, this is a bigger problem than I even knew it was. So, um, it was quite incredible how, how well, and I was terrified before it came out. I, I was like, well, here it goes. I'm going to be, uh, this is it for me. I'll never work in the NHL again. Uh, and it's been completely the opposite. People have been amazing. Okay. So I guess the obvious question is now what, what can we do? Well, to me, it's 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 just continually doing things like this, like telling, t- talking about it, telling the story. Um, somebody out there is going to listen to this podcast that has no idea that's going on, what's going on in their brain, and they're struggling, uh, and they're going to go, "Holy crap, that's exactly what's happening to me!" And then they're going to go get help. And it might, you might get, I don't know how many listeners you have, but it's it's all about sharing stories, being open about stories, talking about it. Um, and, you know, my thing was, is that why in high school and middle school, why, why wasn't I taught this stuff? Like, why, why was, why was this information withheld from me? It almost killed me, um, you know, on mental health because, because of the stigma, um, we're not teaching our children, you know, about mental health. And the fact is, is 20%, one in five are going to get a mental illness. So it doesn't discriminate. That could be your child. That could be my child. That could be a doctor, a lawyer, a hockey player, Mm -hmm. a construction worker. So why are we withholding this information from people, Um, diagnoses and and, um, the ability to go get help? So what can we do? Keep talking about it. Keep, um, you know, letting people know, getting the word out, letting people know that it's okay to not be okay. That's that's what we can do. And Corey, uh, what you're saying is so important being able to talk about it, uh, having a place to go, uh, a shoulder to lean on, uh, an ear to listen. And it's not just the National Hockey League, it's society as a whole, but the NHL, the game you grew up loving, uh, it's a reflection of our society. I think we've got to do more on all fronts. Talking is the start, but providing action and services after somebody says, I've got a problem. Whether the it's the NHL or society at large, we have to get there, don't we? Uh, no, no question we do. And, you know, people are talking now. Now the issue is, is that we don't, we're so far behind because, we, the, you know, we kept it hidden for so long that we don't have the resources now. We don't have the doctors. We don't have the therapists. Um, you know, so that's where we're at right now. So people are like, okay, well, yes, I've got an issue. What do I do? Where do I go? Well, uh, you know, the first thing to me you do is you go see your GP and you, you let them know what's going on and you get a referral to a therapist. Uh, but it's so important to get a proper diagnosis. Uh, so, for example, the first lady that I went to see, and I don't blame her, it's just I, I had no idea what I was looking for, um, wasn't able to treat me, misdiagnosed me, and it almost killed me. So, um you know, when you go to a therapist, they're not all alike. You don't go to a, a shoulder surgeon for knee surgery. Um, so if you, if you have depression, you should go see a depression, someone that specializes. If you're bipolar, you should go see someone that specializes in being or OCD. You should go. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm, like yeah. not all therapists, just because it's a therapist doesn't mean that they're qualified to treat obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, there's lots that are not. So, um, you really need to, to go to your GP, get a referral, and then make sure whatever you get diagnosed with, uh, that you're going to see a specialist, but our wait times are, are way too long right now. So that's another yeah. issue, but that's just what it is. Yeah. Corey, I don't know how to phrase this, uh, even though I make a living asking questions. So I'll just say it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Please. Nothing's off topic. <laughs> I, uh, like I say, I remember that uh, redheaded 16-year-old kid <laughs> in the loops. And, I, you know, people can, whether they know somebody well or just through work, they don't know what's happening in another uh, person's life. I guess I want to ask you are, you, are you okay now? Is this something you get okay over? Or is this like an addiction? It's one day at a time because... The thought 
that you uh, talked about at the beginning of that article about checking out, man, I, I got to say, I, I just want to know you're not thinking that way anymore. Yeah. No, you know what? That's a great question. Um, no, you know what? I, I, I still deal with stuff. Like, uh, there's no cure for mental illness. There, there, there really isn't. But you can live a very productive life. Uh, medications are out there. Um, you know, and there's lots of tools and therapy and, and I did it. I've done enough therapy and that, 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 um, you know, and thank you for asking. I, I really appreciate that. People are, are always so afraid to ask people, you know, are you, are you thinking of harming yourself or, and I'm like, you know what, those are the questions we need to ask people if they're struggling. Uh, as for me, I do very well. Uh, and you know, that's the other message that I want to get out is, is that I want people to look at me when they look at mental illness. I want them to look at Robin Lehner. I want them to look at Michael Phelps. Um, you know, Michael Phelps, 23 gold medals, battles depression. Um, but is he, can he not, he can be very successful. One of the things when you're going through this is you feel like you're doomed to a life of, of zero success and, and mental illness. And it's not true. So I look at it like, look, I've played in the NHL. I've coached in the NHL. I'm a broadcaster for the Vancouver Cuts. Yeah, I still have tough days, but I know that tomorrow is, is always going to be a better day. Um, and I do my therapy and if I need to, I get back to my medication. And that's another thing. There's a stigma with medication. Um, medication saved my life. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you guys if I wouldn't, if I hadn't taken medication at the time. Um, and people are so afraid and they're like all this and that. And you know what, if you need medication and you need it to help you fight mental illness, you take it. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll take other things. We'll, we'll take Oxycontins and Vicodins for painkillers and we'll give people those and, and they're, those are the most deadly things you can give people. But people are so afraid of antidepressants because, you know, it might make them look different because they're they're or crazy because they're on a drug for their brain. No, your brain breaks just like your body does. And sometimes it needs a little bit of help to get you going in the right direction. Corey, your Twitter account is at Corey Hirsch. Your last post, it says on this suicide prevention day, 25 years later, I'm still here and thankful for every day I get. Trust me. It gets better. Hashtag gratitude. Uh, we were going to talk hockey today. We don't have to talk hockey today. This has been fantastic. <laughs> and, and just the ability yeah. to be able to let you tell everybody your story because not everybody's heard it. And there's, uh, there's hope and there are people you can reach out to. I think that's the message we've tried to do here today. And, and, and thank you for letting I mean, I could talk for hours about this stuff. But, yeah, you know what? Um, that's my biggest thing. Go get the help you need. There's a better life out there. Uh, there truly is. And I'm proof of that. And I've, there's other guys that are proof of that. Jamie Baker um, is another guy that's got a great story. So uh, Robin Lehner. So it's, um, you know, very thankful for you guys allowing me to tell my story. And, and hopefully, you know, if, it, if it's, if there's one person out there that it helps and it's all worth it. That's the whole idea, Corey, uh, that and uh, you being well. So yep. thanks for coming on with us today, pal. Hey, and when we have you on Anytime, next, guys. when we have you on next, we'll talk about the fact that this Vancouver Canuck team you're watching, there's some really <laughs> great young talent on that team that's going to be a team to be reckoned with in the future here. So we'll, we'll get into that later in the season. Is that okay? Absolutely. You guys can call me anytime. You know that. Okay. Thanks, Corey. Thanks, Corey. Thanks, gentlemen. Pro-Am Sports is Edmonton's home for sports and entertainment memorabilia. Featuring unique collectibles and apparel, we've got you and your fan cave covered. Pro-Am Sports, located in Edmonton at 12728 St. Albert Trail and proamsports.ca. Joining us is former NHL netminder and also former coach in the National Hockey League with the Edmonton Oilers, Ron Lowe. Low Tide, the original Low Tide. How you doing today? Really good. How are things going there, boys? Great, thank you. We're good. It was uh, it was a tough weekend for all of us, though, as we found out about the passing of a very good friend of ours, Ted Green. And I don't even know where to start with Teddy, but I guess let me let me start with this. I, everywhere I looked and every story I looked at over the weekend, it, it used his uh, nickname, Terrible Teddy Green. And I, and I laugh because he, he might have been that on the ice, and you might have seen that maybe in the locker room. I might have on occasion, but for the most part, he was not Terrible Ted Green. No, uh, actually, well, 
I, I think he was if you're uh, competing against him for space in front of the the net. Uh, there could have been some. Uh, there could have been some some merit to that uh, as a person. Uh, the way I knew Teddy off the ice was uh, one of the absolute gentlemen I've met in the game, and probably one of the nicest people uh, I've ever met. Uh, when I talk about him, I, I talk about Dave Semenko in almost the same voice. They both had that wit that was unbelievable. And uh, Teddy was uh, the one, maybe the most caring person I've ever met in my life in the game. Yeah, I, I agree, Ron. You know, you, you talk about uh, Sammy and, and Ted being somewhat alike in that sense, and it's it's interesting. I was never in that inner circle as a as a coach or a, a teammate with Ted Green I was you know I was one of those interlopers as a reporter who came in and I tell you what just like with Sammy uh, Teddy could be intimidating if you didn't know him he'd give you that that narrow-eyed stare <laughs> and it looked like a one of those uh, lizards about to eat a bug or something and and I remember he called me over once and he didn't like something I'd written and he didn't swear, he didn't yell, he didn't threaten, but he put one of those big meat hooks of his on my shoulder and he said, Robin, I don't think what you wrote uh, the other day uh, was right. And, and we had a discussion at the end of it. He just smiled and all he said was just be fair. He was so understated, so soft-spoken, and there was such a big heart under that exterior, you sometimes couldn't get to it unless you knew him. No, and and that is the truth. I mean, uh, when he talked in a dressing room, and very, Teddy didn't really do a whole lot. He didn't do a bunch of yelling, I'll tell you that. In fact, I don't know if I've ever heard him raise his voice in the dressing room, but all he had to do was look at you and if he was talking in a pregame speech or after a period, uh, he would be giving his, uh, his little chat before you go back out on the ice. And if he was looking at you, <laughs> you knew where the comments were being directed. And believe me, like you said, if you wanted to stare down, it's one you wouldn't win if you were watching Teddy. Do you have a favorite story? Is there one that sticks out in your mind? Because there's so many. Well, I, I think one of the one of the all time great stories about Teddy, and it happened in Washington uh, D.C. one night. We were playing uh, the Caps, and Teddy was head coach, and we were we were having a bit of a bitch of a time at that time, and. I remember Sean Van Allen got just <laughs> smoked, I think it was by Craig uh, Ludwig. Just uh-huh. drilled him, knocked him out cold. I mean, and we're talking out cold. And, well, he kind of stumbles off in his, on his own two feet. So we know he's not, he's not deathly, but we know he's hurt. So the doc comes in and says, Jesus, Teddy, he says, we got uh, kind of bad news here. He says, the kid's totally out of it. Can't remember the hit and doesn't know who he is or where he's at. And Teddy says, well, when he wakes up, can you tell him he's Wayne Gretzky and we're in Washington and we need him? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a that's classic, Teddy. Yeah, that's a, that's... No, I, and you know, I mean, and in the meantime, he's still feeling really bad for Sean because the minute Sean comes back into the room, I mean, he's uh, he's really worried about him. But his wit at that point in time just caught me totally off guard and the doc didn't know what to say. It was just, it was crazy, but that's Teddy. Well, you know, and you saw that, you saw that more than a lot of people, Ronnie. I know you were around Teddy a long time. Um, It's interesting though. There's a, you know, the book, you can't judge a book by its cover thing with Teddy. One of them is this. He had such a big heart he was so generous, and he was generous in a way where it wasn't about him. It was about what he could do. And one of the things, and it's a common thread with you and I now, the first time I ever heard about the mustard seed in Edmonton, which deals with people struggling with 
with uh, poverty and homelessness. The first time I ever heard about the organization was because Teddy was going there and he was going, he wanted to work in the back, he'd work in the kitchen, washing dishes, he'd serve food, uh, he didn't want, there were no press releases, there was no look at me, and it's interesting, one story I got uh, after talking to you the other day with one of the directors, Chris Knutson, who you knew, uh, and was there when Teddy was there, he talks about it, the uh, homeless fellow in the line, and he's eyeballing Teddy, and he looks him up and down, and he gets up to Teddy, and he says, "You're Ted Green. You're the you're the Oilers coach." And he says, "No, no, no. Uh, my name is Theodore." And th- that was Teddy. He was there so often. They told me they actually, as a volunteer, they actually gave him his own business cards. Well, in the end, I think that's uh, one of the all-time great stories. And a lot of people didn't know that Ted did that work at the mustard seed because certainly Ted didn't tell anybody. But uh, it goes back to the same thing that uh, Ted said a lot of times. It's amazing what can be accomplished when uh, nobody has to get credit for what is being accomplished. And uh, that was kind of Teddy in a nutshell. I mean... Uh, he was so into the community and, but on an outside level, not where you, he had to be recognized or anybody had to say, well, geez, Ted Green's working at the mustard seed. He did it because he absolutely wanted to, and it was without fanfare. Really, when I think about working with you guys inside and behind the doors, you know, there was Ted and there was Bob McCammon, guys with just crazy senses of humor. That be, A lot of times people would just not recognize that it was even there. You must have loved the fact that there was a, the, these guys had a bit of a gruff and tough exterior, but the moment you got into the locker room or got into the coach's room and you're working out on the bike, man, those lines would fly, huh? Well, yeah, Green and I used to watch a lot of video together. He'd be on the treadmill and I'd be on the bike. And uh, the one-liners that came out of there were unbelievable. And it it was really funny in uh, New York because there were so many mistakes on the ice. And Greeny used to sit there and he looked at me one day and he said, can you imagine these old guys? and how much money they're getting paid and the mistakes they make are exactly like the guys in Edmonton when they were young and didn't get paid anything. <laughs> I, almost, uh, I almost fell off my, off my uh, bike that day, but you know, that's greedy. I mean, he, he, he recognized it. One of the things about Teddy that a lot of people didn't understand is his analytics of the game. He knew the game inside out. Um, it was amazing. Him and Muck could sit down and they would go over films. And probably one of the reasons that they won five cups in, in Edmonton is that two of them disagreed on a lot of things. And Teddy always told me, and that's one of the things he did tell me, if you're going to be a head coach, you better stand by your conviction unless it's wrong. And uh, that that's probably one of the things I took away from Ted is that you have to fight for what you think is right. And if you realize it's wrong, you just back away subtly and, and carry on. And yeah, that's the kind of guy he was. I I always remember too, after we had the, uh, the Todd Bertuzzi and the Steve Moore incident, where the media was clamoring for some comments, the national media in particular were at practice that day, wanted some comments from Teddy because of the Wayne Mackey incident. And he was leery to do it initially until I convinced him we'll do it all at once with everybody. And then he realized, maybe I can do some good here. And the moment he recognized that, it it was really easy to get him out. And that's just the kind of guy he was. Yeah, I mean, uh, very, like I said, not one bit self-centered, uh, always looking for the, well, basically the betterment of the game. And uh, if you could have had him at coaches' symposiums, which he didn't go to, if you could have ever got him there, 
you would have uh, found a wisdom that was uh, probably beyond a lot of people's uh, comprehension because he understood the game that well. And it's because he studied it. I mean, let's face it, man. He had to he had to redo his whole body after the Wayne Mackey thing, and he went on and played. Uh, taught himself to write left-handed. Like, are you kidding me? The guy's life is a, is a book of perseverance. And, uh, and to be honest, check the number of rings on his fingers. I mean, yeah. the guy was amazing. Five five rings with the Oilers uh, coaching, a couple with the uh, Boston Bruins. And, you know, you and Teddy's time in, in Edmonton as coaches, you know, it, it sort of came after the, uh, you know, the parade on Jasper Avenue era. You had some, you, you had a tough job uh, at times there when you came on board and when Teddy was there. And he would have had to use every ounce of what he'd learned and relearned about the game because it was not an easy gig, was it? No, it uh, it definitely wasn't, and uh, I think a lot was expected of our team, and if you looked at it, uh, probably uh, what was expected wasn't going to be achieved. And in the back end of that, uh, probably that hurt more than anything. But the one thing that didn't change was the commitment to work. And Teddy and he, he came to the rink every morning. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was days when he was, uh, he had headaches, um, terrible migraines, and you'd be there studying film, and you'd sit there and go, how in the hell are you doing this? But that's Teddy. I yeah. mean, he was just that fierce competitor. I mean, I remember one night uh, between Boston and Hartford, we had to actually stop the bus, and he got out to get air because he had a, a migraine that was so bad. And yet the next night he's on the bench and uh, doing his job. That's uh, exactly the way he was. I can't recall if it was the playoff run of uh, 1990 where they went on to win the cup, but there, I remember vividly, and this told me about the respect level the players had for him. We had a little incident where he got into it with some fans in Winnipeg before getting on the bus. And most of the players were on the bus. And I remember the players saying, Greeny's in trouble. And Bucky, of course, Kelly Bookberger was the first one off the bus. But that bus just unloaded because they wanted to go out there and uh, back up their buddy. And I, I, I still remember that to this day, Ron. Yeah, it was... Uh... Yeah, my dogs are going nuts here. Right That's now. okay. That's what they do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, there was an incident there. It was uh, kind of a crazy one. I remember uh, somebody said something about uh, one of Ted's sons, and uh, that's something you didn't get away with. No. Uh, Teddy took offense, and... Uh, yeah, our bus cleared out. Oh, yeah. No, I was sitting there, and I, as I said, I remember Kelly flying off that bus, and everybody was off that bus. And I thought, are they going to save him? No, they were just going to back him up. They weren't. No, Ted Green never needed to be saved. <laughs> no, that's what Bucky said. Save the By other the guy. time I got out there, he said Teddy had the guy under the car. <laughs> so, I mean, no, that's, that's exactly. And those are the things that you remember about Teddy. I mean, what a family guy he was. Holy man, he was mm-hmm. so proud of his kids and his wife. and Amazing. I remember one story that uh, Butch Goring told me. Butchie and Teddy played at the same golf course in St. Boniface. And at this golf course, they had a thing on Saturday and Sunday mornings where people teed off on one and people teed off on ten. So they got more players through and then people that came off of uh, 18 would filter into one and play between tee off times on one that were already slotted. So Teddy's there with his two boys one day and uh, he's come off of uh, 18 and he's going to number one to tee off because they had started on 10. So uh, this guy comes running up to the tee box and said, this is my tee box it's my turn to tee off. And Teddy goes, no, it isn't. We just came off of 18 
and we're going off of one, and you guys are teeing off after us. And the guy just gets steaming, irate, and mad, and he runs down to his freaking club, picks up an iron, and comes up with it half held in his hand, and he's coming up to Ted with the iron, and looks like they're going to go into a swinging duel, and Teddy looks at the guy and pulls out his driver and says, "Sir, you've underclubbed yourself." <laughs> <laughs> and oh, Butch man. Goring happened to be there that day and said it was the funniest thing. He said the guy just melted and walked back <laughs> down to his golf cart. So, oh, yeah, man, Teddy, uh, yeah, the memories. Hey, Ronnie, if the dogs are barking, I know we got to let you go, but uh, you know. Uh, I, there's going to be a, a little something I know, uh, before the, uh, Philly game at, at Rogers place, uh, Wednesday, uh, I imagine, uh, there's a lot of thoughts, uh, and, uh, good memories with the alumni, uh, there with Teddy, uh, Edmonton was a better city with Ted Green in it. And, and, uh, I know a lot of people are going to miss him, huh? Well, Absolutely. And, um, I mean, you know that uh, Teddy and the family are probably the most uh, private people in the world. And uh, they, they are very much into to their grieving process right now. And uh, I feel for them. Um, it's, it's amazingly hard and we've lost the great guy and uh, my heart's go out to them all i know is when i heard and i saw the announcement at msg and my first reaction was i welled up a little bit and then i started to smile and then i started to laugh because of all the stories and i thought you know what he'd be so happy to hear that yeah well he is like i said yeah robin you're right we're gonna miss him in the in the city and anybody that uh, has ever met him is going to miss him because that's what he left. He left that impression on you every time. Yeah, Ron, thanks for your time today. We yeah, appreciate it. Those dogs, uh, those dogs need to be fed. Yeah, okay, we'll talk to you. And we'll see you somewhere. Thanks, somewhere. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Ronnie. Okay. Fresh air. Experience it all this summer in a new RV from Carefree RV. Trade up to the perfect bunk model from reputable brands like Winnebago at Forest River. So many floor plans and payments starting at just $53 bi-weekly. Plus, one free year of CoachNet warranty on all RVs. Carefree RV, open seven days a week in Edmonton and Leduc. Online, carefreerv.ca. Wow, that was quite the show today. It got a little heavy at times with Corey, but it had to, because that's a story that's simply got to be told, Robin. Yeah, and it's important in so many ways outside the world of sports. Uh, Corey Hirsch uh, takes a lot of courage to talk about what he's been through, uh, and the upside of that is what he is now doing advocating for people struggling with mental health issues. It's a wonderful story. If you haven't read it, it's uh, called Dark. It's the Players' Tribune. Uh, you can find it. Give it a read, and there's a follow-up story by Corey uh, called You Are Not Alone. If you're one of those people struggling with uh, mental health issues, or even if you're not, and you want to try and understand uh, what the person next to you might be suffering silently, I'd give them a read. Funny how Robin Williams' passing really seemed to enlighten a lot of people because there was a guy who was so full of energy and so full of life, and yet people did not know what was going on behind the scenes. And it just seems like that woke a lot of people up. And you know what? So I'm with you. Uh, By the way, if you want to check out Corey on Twitter, it's at Corey Hirsch. It's as simple as that. The... Other thing we got to pass along, a big thank you to Ron Lowe for joining us today to talk about his friend Ted Green. And uh, that was, like I said, it's been an interesting show because it's been heavy at times, but it, we've also had some laughs. And uh, and that's what we try to do here. 
And uh, I don't know. I don't know what else I can tell you. Look who we have on the show next week, by the way. Stu Grimson, the Grim Reaper, has got a book out. Reaper. Looking forward to talking to him. You could email us your thoughts on this show or maybe some shows in the future that you, you'd like us to track somebody down. We'll try to do that. Email us at mightymouthatshaw.ca. Your Twitter account is? Uh, Robin underscore Brownlee. Simple and, as that. And mine is uh, at Bryn Mighty Mouth. And it's uh, pretty straightforward. Hey, before we go, what do you want to say? Well, I got to tell you, uh, Bryn, I think we knocked it out of the park today, to be honest. Uh, both segments I thought were really good. Uh, I hope uh, people out there uh, enjoy it as much as uh, I did doing it. And uh, one thing before we go, uh, Godspeed, Ted Green. Recording was recorded earlier because we were ashamed to do it now.